So that's Phil for me, and that's Alex. Oh, yeah. See, this is George. No, wait. That's... No, stop. Both of you stop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so fucking annoying. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga. The date is the 13th of May 2021. My name is Alex Ochile, and I'm here, as always, with George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe. Today, we're discussing Phil's book, another of Phil's books. We discussed uh, very recently a book of his called The New 20 Years Crisis. Um, and today, we're discussing another of his books that came out relatively recently called Cosmopolitan Dystopia, International Intervention, and The Failure of the West. Hello, welcome. Welcome, uh, guest Phil. Thank you. It's really great to be here. Thanks for having me on. It's really kind of you. Do I need we've to run you through how this works? you back. <laughs> I know, even better. Yeah, yeah. P- explain to me, please, how the podcast works. Yeah, so um, we ask you questions and then uh, disagree and then tell you how awful we found your book. <laughs> so it's meant to be really unpleasant, really unpleasant experience, both for you and the listener. Um, because they should be cringing as as they listen to this. Sounds 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 about right. Sounds like my typical experience interacting with you guys. So that sounds fine. <laughs> or just your typical experiences. Full stop. Uh, <laughs> right. So um, to get started, I, I actually should make a note that there's going to be some issues that we don't deal uh, with in this episode, but that we did deal with in the previous episode when we last interviewed Phil, um, talking about his book, The New Twenty Years Crisis. Let me just say what those are because. You you can then refer back to that episode, which will have come out on uh, the 18th of May. It's episode 193, um, whereas this one's coming out in, in June. So um, the two of the issues, one is about realism. And so the international relations theory of realism, holding that states act according to their own interests and that you have an international system which uh, drives states to, to be sort of competitive, um, that realist critics have actually ended up in some ways the most radical critics of the international order today because they're the ones looking at, for example, uh, US-led interventions around the world and going, actually, these act against American interests. They lead to more conflict and more war. And so they're bad, basically. Um, And again, you know, Phil, if you think I'm mischaracterizing it, feel feel free to jump in. Um, The other concept, which we're not going to be dealing with here, but I just want to kind of remind listeners what it is, because um, maybe Phil might make reference to it and and to avoid having to go through all this again, um, is inverted revisionism. So, I mean, revisionism is basically the idea that, for example, the sides on the losing side of the First World War, like Japan or Germany, were revisionist powers, were ones who would want to come in and change the rules of the way the international order worked. Um, Whereas what you have today is the leading states, the winners of the Cold War, in particular the United States, but also Britain, France, and others, um, wanting to uh, make changes to the way that the the world is run, um, despite the fact that the rules are, were created by them and in in theory should suit them. There should be status quo powers, and yet they're the ones going around and ripping up the rule book on sovereignty and on intervention, um, which uh, has often proved self-defeating. And so this is something that Phil calls inverted revisionism, but you should go check out that episode, which was episode nine, 193 on the New 20 Years Crisis, which is an excellent book. Uh, check that out. Um, if you haven't heard it yet. So to get started with uh, with the matter at hand, actually, we're going to start with a little discussion of France, because what's happened, uh, this has been in the news recently, and I assume it won't have gone away by the time you're listening to this, is that 
French officers have written a letter, uh, sort of an open letter, intervening in French domestic affairs effectively, arguing that they've been all fighting counterinsurgency wars in the Sahel in North Africa, um, trying to keep peace and effectively fighting Islamists, fighting Islamic jihadists, and that they come back home and that France is overrun by Islamists, supposedly. Um, And this is, in a way, a kind of perverse form of blowback, is it not, Phil? Um, a form of blowback of, on the, of the war on terror in a different way to which we have been led to expect. Yeah, so blowback was conceived of to talk about the um, way in which, you know, what was essentially a CIA outfit, Al-Qaeda, in the case of um, when the US set it up to um, wage their war against the Soviet-backed regime in Kabul during the 1980s. And then, you know, like every kind of crappy Hollywood script, Al-Qaeda, you know, CIA agent goes rogue and so and attacks the US and that was blowback. And this is a different kind of blowback where the democratic institutions of the French state itself are being called into question by, um, you know, the armed forces of that state. So, um I think, I mean, the connection is, you know, there's a kind of a strong nationalist and Praetorian tradition in the French military stemming back to the 1950s and the collapse of the Fourth Republic and the way in which the French military installed the Gaulle over the crises of French imperialism back then. So it's not, um, you know, it's not unexpected behavior, I suppose, on the part of the French officer class, because there's precedence for it in the post-war period. Um, The connect. There is, I think, a kind of a deeper connection in as much as the, you know, how far it runs into the ranks of the French military itself. And I think that's a separate question because there was a follow up letter to the initial letter, which was, you know, the letter was all by the first letter was all by retired French military officers um, and senior officers who you'd expect to be the kind of the the nationalist, Gaullist, or even anti-Gaullist, depending on how far right they are, um, officer class. But then there was a follow-up letter, which according to the publication Valeur Actuelle, that published it, you know, over 100,000, I think, um, serving personnel, rank-and-file personnel supported it. And I think that is, you know, I think there is more to it there in that latter case, because um, you have... French soldiers deployed in the forever war across the Sahel, the French forever war across the Sahel. So even though the American forever war in Afghanistan might be winding down, the French forever war in the Sahel continues. But they, you know, they're so kind of heavily involved in overseeing, not just kind of fighting jihadists, but in overseeing, in being given kind of a greater prominence in terms of French politics, French political life and French foreign policy. And also in terms of um, having to oversee the complete kind of political reconstruction of those states in North Africa. And I wonder if that boosts the paternalism of counterinsurgency, essentially. I wonder if that boosts their Praetorian instincts and their feeling of significance Mm. and importance and their right to overrule elected representatives back home as a result of their experience in what are effectively nation-building counterinsurgency campaigns. But there's something specific about those campaigns that feeds back into how they view their own role in domestic politics. Yeah, it's an in- it's an interesting one, and I'm sure we'll we'll get into the the logic of cosmopolitan dystopia, obviously in in the discussion. But there is a sense in which you know the interventions uh, abroad, you know, they have their their echoes and their repercussions domestically. And this is, you know, one of one of many examples, but one that, you know, plays particularly into 
I think the the some of the some of the forms, and I guess we'll talk about this to ISIS of what this um, contemporary cosmopolitan dystopia looks like. But um, yeah, we should kick on with the kick on with the book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think I would just repeat what George said, that uh, treating foreign policy as something that can be sort of siloed off, um, that won't have uh, so much import on domestic affairs. Um, it's probably misguided because uh, it will come back to bite you in the ass. Speaking of biting in the ass, let's start with ISIS, um, because uh, Islamic State is a sort of running. Sorry, what, can, you, can you just spell out that that, that segue? <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, I think it's obvious. I think it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> um, so ISIS is a running motif throughout the book, even if it's not directly the focus of the book. In fact, the cover of the book uh, depicts refugees in, in Syria. Um, so, Phil, in the book, you describe Islamic State as cosmopolitan. You put that in a quite pointed way. And you describe it as cosmopolitan rather than nationalistic. So, I mean, firstly, why do you see it as cosmopolitan? For me, that seems maybe a bit perverse. We know that foreign fighters went and, and joined Islamic State to create this thing there, right? But they're trying to create an Islamic State. They're creating a state, uh, not maybe just an, an empire. Um, and so like you signed as evidence of um, of this sort of cosmopolitan nature, their attempt to join up territory from Raqqa and Syria to Mosul in Iraq. But I mean, that doesn't seem to me any different from uh, just in terms of its relationship to sov- to state sovereignty, it doesn't seem any different from the Kurds' desire for their own state, which would itself include territory from Iran, Turkey, Iraq, and Syria. So you see Kur- the Kurds as a classic example of modern nationalism, um, No, nothing kind of mysterious or new about that, whereas Islamic State was this new cosmopolitan thing. Why? Yeah, so the the simple or the straightforward answer is because the referent for the Islamic State was the community of believers, um, Muslims everywhere. And listeners might recall um, the social media kind of propaganda operations of ISIS where they broadcast um, or they put up kind of visions of um, far more than just uh, the kind of border regions of Syria and Iraq, but envisage themselves stretching across um the entirety of the Muslim world and far beyond as, as far as the old Islamic empire. So nationalism, I mean, it requires a referent to be a nation. Um, whereas for ISIS, the referent was Muslims potentially everywhere, but a community of believers um, rather than a nation kind of uh, seeking to establish itself with independent statehood. And also, it understood itself in a very different way, whereas the idea of nationhood is to establish kind of functioning institutions of government and to be recognized by other governments and states as an equal, as a peer. Um, obviously, that was never the politics or the political vision of ISIS, which had to claim um, claimed kind of uh, supranational form of legitimacy that went higher than any kind of existing institution because it claimed direct sanction from um, from God himself. And so the, the kind of the grand delinquence of this very particular kind of supranational vision, um, it was not accidental that it was also styled in such a way that it would draw all of the foreign jihadi fighters. So, I mean, it was cosmopolitan in terms of its political vision in that it sought to transcend the nation state, not just to redistribute territory among nation states, um, but that it was also cosmopolitan in terms of the appeal and that it genuinely had people 
tens of thousands of people from all over the world um, flocking to its banner. So it was cosmopolitan in terms of its multi-ethnic, multinational makeup in terms of the people who, um, you know, who burned all their passports on social media yeah. when they went there and, um, and joined it. And so the claim in the book is that this kind of weird supranational entity um, holds up to the rest of us. Um, they reflect back at us ourselves in a kind of uh, dark and distorted mirror, a world in which the sovereign state, in which we've sought to supersede the sovereign state through supranational institutions, um, through kind of forcing, trying to kind of crush different states together through um, eroding borders and through establishing authorities that are higher than the authority of the sovereign state. Right. So with that in mind, uh, we should actually maybe clear a bit of ground on what cosmopolitanism actually means. I mean, I think maybe people would understand cosmopolitanism as, um, you know, liberal individual rights, um, uh, perhaps open borders and about extending care uh, beyond just the boundaries of, of your own state uh, to care just as much about suffering in Syria as you might in Scunthorpe. Um you actually distinguish cosmopolitanism from the liberal internationalism. And I think maybe a lot of people would see those as, um, as synonymous effectively. Um, but you're a little bit more favorable towards liberal internationalism or the liberal international order. Um, and you contrast that with the cosmopolitanism, which you kind of characterize as a dystopia. So what's the difference? Yeah. So the, there's, I mean, at the end of the day, there's only so much weight certain words can bear. Um, and cosmopolitanism and liberal internationalism are kind of, um, you know, intertwined historically, um, not least in the vision of um, the, not least in the vision of the quintessential liberal philosopher, Immanuel Kant. In Kant's vision, you know, he writes kind of essays um, in terms of developing a cosmopolitan world order um, and um, develops a universal history of humanity um, and describes in cosmopolitan terms. The difference, I think, is though the changes that have happened in, in the meantime and in the interim. And so I choose, I kind of try and separate cosmopolitanism to describe a different kind of late modern politics. And in the Kantian classical vision of liberal internationalism, um, you know, in his famous kind of essay of perpetual peace, he sees he, the sovereign state as an integral part of it. Um, and he sees it as a, the essay is presented as a peace treaty, which is to say a contract. So the authority of the, of the League of States, which he envisaged as um, producing a kind of a cosmopolitan order of perpetual peace, was based on the authority of, of states, rather than institutionalizing a supranational order above those states. It was understood as, uh, as, a, as a federation, in effect, rather than as something which would be fused under higher supranational authorities. So in the old liberal idea, um, the sovereign state was, and retaining the political autonomy of the sovereign state was vital to that. And Kant understood the sovereign state as a absolute keystone for um, freedom and um, that uh, and autonomy. And that's changed over the course of the last 200 years. And so I choose cosmopolitanism to kind of describe something else, which is the way in which it's a very different kind of political vision. And in the new political vision of cosmopolitanism, the sovereign state is abraded or eroded away. Um, and in particular, it's derogated beneath specific institutions of supranational 
politics, international courts, um, kind of uh, treaties, international institutions, supranational institutions like the United Nations or the European Union and others. And so it's a very different vision. And at the same time, you also have a change in the way in which the individual is understood as well. Um, and that you have the, instead of um, the individual being integrated within these larger political collectivities, the individual is elevated above the sovereign state through the model of human rights. And so the transformation of the way in which the individual's rights are understood, rather than as civic and um, political rights in the context of the state to human rights that are torn out of that context is key to the transformation from the kind of classical ideals of liberalism to cosmopolitanism. Right. I mean, there's quite a lot there to, to um, unpick, but I think that idea that cosmopolitanism today means the elevation of the individual over the nation and it's a kind of supranational cosmopolitanism. You know, I, I just think that's funny, true and correct. But I guess then the question becomes, what is the role and function of cosmopolitanism in contemporary domestic politics? As we've discussed, I mean, it's um, it, it can be understood in different ways, right? So, I mean, it can be understood as a kind of as a cultural um, outlook, as a sociological kind of descriptor, as a political outlook. And... Um, you know, within domestic politics, um, particularly in the context of European states, it functions, I think, essentially as a way to um, distance oneself from one's own citizens and to deny the legitimacy of um, the existing political institutions of, a, of the existing national state and to claim or to ascribe kind of um, greater import to less democratic institutions above and outside the state. So, I mean, that's the way I think Cosmopolitan would exist. Yeah. But I do want to, so I do want to make, I do want to talk a bit about this point about dystopia because, so it's not just that it's cosmopolitan, but it's also dystopian. And I think the important point, so the, idea of human rights was offered as a corrective to the excesses of the 20th century, um, precisely because it was seen to be kind of less ideological, more uh, moral, um, less disputed, that it was kind of something that we could all agree on and that didn't require the kind of hubristic revolutionary hopes of the 1960s and 1970s that so often ended in kind of squalid failure. The idea of human rights was offered as a more modest goal um, for the left as a whole and for liberalism as well. Um, and so it was offered as something which was restrained and anti-utopian. And so the claim of the book is that we now have, the, just as you know, we had the results of the 20th century, the utopian hopes of the 20th century, and they were disastrous. And now we have the results are in for this more moderate restrained form of moralized politics that came through in the late 20th century. And what and are the results? They're not good. Um, as Alex mentioned on the front cover of the book, you can see refugees from an embattled ISIS enclave arriving in, a, arriving in a refugee camp. And they're genuinely dystopian. I mean, almost ostentatiously so. If you think about ISIS was openly running, not only running slave markets, but openly boasting about it on social media. Um, so it was genuine, not only cosmopolitan, but also dystopian. So that even this attempt to kind of have a more restrained and moral form of politics has led to such, um, has had such kind of catastrophic ramifications that it is legitimate to call it dystopian. So, I mean, obviously this human rights 
idea has an, a kind of lowest common denominator element to it in the way that you described something that we can all agree on there it's kind of a basic minimum they're not even social rights it's just you know the basic right to, to life and to to reduce suffering um, and to stop atrocities now so that's there's an element of like sort of it's very much anti-utopian um but at the same time, um, this idea of stopping atrocity, which is like the, the main thing in the international order now. So it's not about stopping conflict, but about preventing atrocity. Um, and you can think about, you know, the U.S. bombing Libya to, to, pre to prevent a, a purported massacre that was going to happen um, in Benghazi. Um, so but what's, what seems kind of well, at least is perplexing about it is that this anti-utopian idea is also complicit with overreach and hubris that it's like the west going and and particularly the united states but not only the united states going completely overboard and thinking that it can com it completely it can stop atrocity anywhere and that it can reform the international order around these ideas so can you help us untangle this how can it be both how can it be sort of anti-utopian and at the same time hubristic i suppose it means it depends what you mean by hubristic so it is limitless in the sense that there is no limit on US power beyond the kind of expedient one. Is it, um, you know, is it efficient or effective for the US to intervene in this particular conflict or this particular kind of humanitarian crisis? Um, but it's, uh, there is no way, there is no um, legal or constitutional limit on that power. So it works in the sense once, once you claim higher authority than that of the sovereign state, then there is no external limit in terms of um, legal or political limit to the exercise of force um, by Western states. And also at the same time, the enhanced um, appeal of military power within Western states also obviously erodes the restraints on the use of force within those states themselves. What about so, the international community? Can't the international community come in and restrain uh, the instrumental use of human rights discourse for the naked advance of US imperial power? Well, I'm glad you mentioned <laughs> it, Alex, because you know I, pay, I place, I know how much hope that you place in the international community. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Um, and to also to rescue you from fascist dictator Bolsonaro as well. So, you know, I know that you're hoping that there'll be a humanitarian rescue for you in, in Brazil. <laughs> yeah, not so much, not so much. Um, so we should actually talk about interventionism. And uh, Phil, if you want to refer as we go through this to specific interventions and kind of what's gone wrong. Um, because, yeah, I just wanted to, inter I just yeah, wanted on, to intervene here, um, as it were. By, was, it was it just to make that pun? Because if it's just that, you can you can go back. I, I said I wanted to intervene. I didn't say I had an intervention to make. No, um, but I should think of something now that I've said that. No, so just yeah, just to kick us off, a bit of a history, a potted history of like what is intervention or what is humanitarian intervention? Like what are some of the the particularly um what's the first one? Lurid failures. Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, where does it start? What are the low points? Like um well, what are the Is low points and the high points? points? Um, <laughs> so, I mean, any of our listeners who've studied this at university will know if they open up any textbook, they'll be taught about a few military interventions in the Cold War. Vietnam intervening in Cambodia to overthrow the regime of Pol Pot. Um, Tanzania intervening against Uganda Zidi Amin. Um, and India intervening in what was then East Pakistan during the Bangladeshi War of Independence. Um, and generally, these examples are given to 
um, uh, essentially, you know, to provide camouflage for the fact that humanitarian intervention is essentially a Western thing. Um, and it really takes off after the end of the Cold War. Um, you could say it begins perhaps in 1989 with the US intervention in Panama, which was um, the beginning of a kind of, um, of one kind of campaign after another. But really, it begins in Iraq, I think. Um, and the end of the Gulf War, um, the Americans encouraged um, the Kurds and the Shia of Iraq to rise up against Saddam Hussein, and then they changed their mind, leaving their erstwhile allies exposed to um, Saddam's revenge. And so this precipitated a humanitarian crisis, the response to which was effectively um, impose an air occupation on Iraq, in which the country was um, divided into various no-fly zones and humanitarian aid was dropped on to the Kurds who had fled into the mountains in northern Iraq and were trapped there during the winter as they were um, sheltering from Iraqi forces there. So I think, I mean, you know, when we're talking about humanitarian intervention in the modern era, it really begins with the air occupation of Iraq, effectively, and the cultivation of the Kurds um, as humanitarian charitable victims of sympathy, rather than as uh, a nation struggling to establish their own independence. And then it goes through a chain of interventions through West Africa, Somalia, the Balkans, Bosnia, Kosovo, until it gets back to Iraq in 2003, when one of the justifications for the invasion is um, to end Saddam's tyranny and to alleviate the suffering of the Iraqi people. Um, and indeed, in Afghanistan, you know, once they've destroyed Al-Qaeda, then it turns, morphs into a war of um, ending the um, suffering of the Afghan people. And this continues in various kind of um, peacekeeping operations in Africa, in East Timor in 1999 as well. So one military campaign after another, which is justified essentially on these liberal lines of allevi alleviating human suffering, um, spreading democracy and human rights, um, and also uh, enacting international justice. So, I mean, listener, if you're hearing this and thinking, yeah, but that's just naked exercise of state power and imperial interests, particularly in the United States case, and then all this humanitarian talk is just a bit of ideological gloss added to it to, to sell it. Um, and so why should we care about it? We're going to come to that. Don't worry. We're going to come to that issue a little later on. But before that, I think there's one claim that you make in the book, which I thought was quite striking um, at, at, at one level, self-evident, but also maybe perplexing. So you say that no, no one, effectively no state, defends sovereignty and non-interference as such today. So can you explain, and maybe um, as, a, as a sort of contrast, when did the international system have principal defenders of sovereignty in it? Uh, and, and what's changed? Yes, I mean, surprising as it might seem, there was, I mean, generally, states would defend the right to non-interference. It would be seen the idea that um, it was illegitimate, politically illegitimate and illegal to interfere in the, in the internal affairs of another state was something that states held to, even if, you know, they, um, they, they might have... In, in practice or in rhetoric or both? Well, to some extent in both. I mean, so, you know, in practice, obviously, state sovereignty was frequently violated, but it would not have been justified in those terms, in the ideas that there were higher principles than state sovereignty. And, you know, that was the homage that vice paid to virtue to some extent. But also, um, once you have a rhetoric that legitimates interference in other states' affairs, lo and behold, you get more interference in other states' affairs. 
And so this might, you know, I mean, this is, this point might seem a fine one, but I think it's actually very important um, because there is a difference between political necessity. So intervening, say, in the affairs of another state and claiming that it is necessary to, um, you know, uh, break the letter of the law to uphold the spirit, for instance, um, and that there are kind of extenuating circumstances. There's a difference between that and revamping the international order to make intervention easier and more legitimate. And it's the latter that we've seen with humanitarian intervention. So it's not just that there's the claim of necessity, but the attempt to transform international law, to build new institutions, and to suppress the rights of the sovereign state in order to make intervention in the internal affairs of other states easier. And the so, consequences of that, I think, I just so sorry, George, just to make this point, yeah. though, but that it erodes the possibility of accountable government and representative government. Because if it's legitimate for any government to interfere in the affairs of any other on grounds of um, on humanitarian grounds or on the grounds of defending human rights, then it becomes increasingly impossible to establish who is actually responsible for whom. Um, and I think that the the consequences of that are genuinely, um, you know, genuinely, uh, again, I mean, dystopian to some extent, but genuinely sinister and disturbing. And it has been, and this goes some way to answering your earlier question, George, about cosmopolitanism, because it has been an important way in which Western states have repressed the demands of their own citizens. It's become human rights was a, a very effective tool for curbing the democratic interests of their own citizens, right? Because when they say the human rights of um, the Tamils or the Palestinians or the Rwandans or the Bosnians or the Somalis or the Afghans, they are matter. They matter to us, and we're going to fight to enforce them. You know, the flip side of that was that um, your demands for better hospitals and roads and higher wages and better jobs and whatever those are less important. So. The decline of account, you know, the way in which human rights and defending human rights eroded accountability and the ability to establish who was responsible for whom was very important, not only mm -hmm. kind of by eroding that principle of sovereign statehood in the third world, the old third world, but also undercutting um, the claims of representation in Western states themselves. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really important point. Um, but the, what I just, I guess, wanted to jump in to, to ask was whether it's stretching it to say that intervention is essentially the 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 the, the principle of the international order. Um, whether this kind of like this this kind of state of exception logic that once you have um, one once you have it justified in one case, it becomes the the standard operating procedure of the international order. I mean, would you would you go that far and say like this is the international relations today is is all about intervention and I mean, the, yeah, the and situations just in which you can do that? Just to tack something onto that, because I think people would think, yeah, okay, you had the high point of that with Iraq, right? And and maybe Libya was probably the, the kind of final shot, and now it's kind of eased off a little bit, right? So yeah, maybe this applied to that to, you know, 2011 was the real peak of this, but no longer. You have yeah, those so exceptions and we're over them. Yeah, so I would say I would agree with you, George. It is the organizing principle, but you can't have um, an org kind of, a, you can't really have an international order around that principle. And so the result is in fact, cosmopolitan dystopia. 
um, where you don't have clearly established lines of political authority, and it's impossible to attribute political responsibility for any particular people or territory as a result of the, um, well, just the chaos that has been the perpetual war and chaos that has been left in states in which this new kind of humanitarian order has effectively been enforced. So cosmopolitan dystopia is the ultimate logic of of a um, international order that has been organized around the principle of, of interventionism. And so when I said that there is no state that defends sovereignty, you could argue like it was, you know, China and Russia were kind of seen as um, conservative, even reactionary states for defending the right of non-interference. Um, and that is, um, you know, more or less, they've both relinquished that um, in the last 20 years or so. So as China's developed more kind of um, interests, strategic interests in Africa, it has seen more benefit to the idea of um, developing supranational military intervention, has become more heavily involved in United Nations peacekeeping operations in Africa. And Russia has been, has used, um, incited Western precedents when they've launched their own interventions in the in Ukraine. So the disintegrative effects are felt kind of further afield than just the outcomes of, um, you know, the US in Iraq and so on. Well, one thing and I, I guess, yeah. well, and, I and, and, and that means it's question. not, it, it's not yeah. the external actions of Russia and China to undermine this order, but the internal contradictions that it has. I think that's the point that comes through in the book. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. So, well, I would just, I guess I wanted to kind of answer the, the other question by way of um, just explaining with it, how the book, you know, came, where the book came about. So originally I would, this book was going to be very different. It was going to be a retrospective, you know, I was thinking about it in the aftermath of the U S withdrawal from Iraq in 2010, it was going to be a retrospective on just how, bloody and destructive the cycle of military interventions had been. Um, and it was inconceivable to me that it would be possible to justify, to have another military intervention justified in humanitarian terms. I mean, obviously, I expected Western powers to use force again in the global south. I just didn't think they'd be able to justify it in humanitarian terms. And then they bombed Libya in 2011 on purely humanitarian terms. In Iraq, there was still, you know, the notorious kind of uh, justification of the weapons of mass destruction. There was nothing like that in Libya. Indeed, Gaddafi had abandoned his WMD programs and still they, you know, there was the humanitarian bombing of Libya. And so and then it became then the book I had to change tack. And I imagined, you know, I had to explain how humanitarianism had somehow um, could still be pressed into service to justify the use of military force, despite just how utterly devastating and terrible things had been in Iraq and how it could be recycled as without any um, accountability and used in another disastrous war in the same region against another Arab nation. Um, and then, you know, sure enough, it was used again when um, Mali next door to Libya disintegrated as a, as a consequence of the um, of uh, the knock-on effects of the Libyan civil war. And then humanitarian bombing happened in Syria um, as a result of the alleged use of chemical weapons by the Syrian government against rebels. And so I realized, you know, it wasn't possible to tell the story in terms of these kind of discrete cases. And that in fact, it was part of an integrated pattern of interconnected um, of interconnected conflicts in a way where it would become almost impossible to tell when they actually began, because precisely because in a world in which um, sovereign, you know, state sovereignty has been superseded, it becomes impossible to attribute cause and to attribute to identify agency 
Um, and then so it became rather in, instead of kind of um, understanding these as separate cases, I thought they had to be understood as a single political order. And that order was one of cosmopolitan dystopia. That's like my point when sufficient exceptions, you know, prove, mean that there's an underlying logic and it's not just uh, a series of unfortunate events. But sorry, Alex, you, you were going to. Well, I mean, no, just before on. we move on to, to the other question, like one thing that struck me is the the sort of low uh, decreased estimation in which um, state capacities are held kind of domestically as well. I mean, something that we've discussed a bunch on this podcast, also in reference to like leading Western states being unable to deal with the COVID crisis and so on. Um, that also in terms of humanitarian intervention and in responsibility to protect with regard to especially states in, in the global South, that, you know, if there's civil war or the you know possibility of atrocities being committed and so on, um, the emphasis is obviously in preventing those atrocities, which often make matters worse. I mean, maybe the pr- atrocities prevented, but it escalates the war into never greater thing, you know, as the Syrian war, um, you know, holds, shows us. Um, but that there's no real emphasis on like, well, actually, we need to build a state which um, is capacitatious, if that's a word, um, but or, you know, to bolster the state, to bolster state authority there, um, because, you know, the basic like a kind of bare bones sovereignty providing security isn't a particularly great vision of society, but it's better than the alternative, which is a kind of state of nature sort of anarchy. Um, and so I don't know, it, it strikes me that there's a kind of lowering an estimation of, of kind of a, of the basic state capacities, both in and state authority, both in um, kind of internal affairs in, in the West, as well as in relation to uh, in, interventions in the global South. No, indeed. And I mean, I think the, you know, one thing I suppose that I could say I've learned through this book, um, through writing the book, is not to underestimate the significance of political order. Um, And also, you know, not to be casual or dismissive about the importance of political order and security, Um, you know, just as a basic condition of ordinary human life, let alone um, human flourishing. So, um, you know, the idea of kind of um, dismissing states for being brutal and oppressive and simply imagining that you could kind of um, rub them out with uh, the flick of a pen or the, um, you know, kind of delete them on the screen on a digital map or whatever it was. You know, I mean, that's more or less what they did, you know, kind of NATO planners, um, Western military planners, that's more or less what they did. And the results in, um, you know, throughout North Africa and the Middle East have been truly disastrous. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, as everybody knows, um, there wasn't really too much of a problem with interventionism um, until Russia started meddling in the US election, yeah. in, in Brexit yes. and so on. Um, and really, this is all Russia's fault. Um yeah. And what's interesting is that Russia justifies its, uh, you know, hideous and, and uh, unjustifiable interventions um, by saying the West does it. I mean, the goal of them, the goal, the sheer goal uh, of, of them to say that the West started it. Um, but this is this is the, the nature of relations that Russia has now and, and the way that Russia operates, both in re- uh, behavior and in rhetoric. Like its deal and Putin's modus operandi is to hold up a mirror to the West, basically trolling it. Um, this is a point that... Uh, 
we have discussed on this podcast before discussing uh, Ivan Krastev's book on uh, the light that failed in an, in an old reading club from last year. Um, but basically, Russia says, hey, you guys use cosmopolitan or humanitarian justifications to hypocritically advance your own interests. So why the hell can't we? Why can't we intervene in Georgia also claiming uh, humanitarian motives or intervening in uh, Ukraine or wherever else? Um, so that that's quite interesting, isn't it? The way that... Um, obviously very much counter to the, to the notion that Russia started, um, but that all, all that Russia can do is Russia isn't an, a traditional upholder of sovereignty, but really just follows the West's lead um, at, every, at every step. Well, it shows the, um, I guess, the systemic nature of it, doesn't it? It shows that there's not a, there's no outside. I mean, as we were talking about earlier, even the, the I guess, <laughs> economic potentially rather than humanitarian interventions of China in in terms of developing infrastructure in Africa, for example, it just shows that the, the um, there's there's no there's no state defending um, sovereignty and, and why would they? Um, to a certain extent, there's there's I mean, <clears throat> there's actually one question that I have, and we can get onto this: the role of of how this system came about and whether it's or, or to what extent it's determined by the internal class politics of, of various different states but it does definitely i think add credence to the the overall argument that this is this, the logic of cosmopolitan dystopia of continual intervention is um is a global one So, I mean, one way that people might seek to respond to the points that you're making, Phil, is to look to the UN. And I think no one is a great believer in the UN these days. Um, and everybody knows that it's held hostage to the interests of uh, the five permanent members of the Security Council and their veto power. But nevertheless, um, even reading your book, you might feel that, well, hell, you know, the UN Charter at least holds up sovereignty, um, you know, excluding some sort of uh, recent... Uh, recent sort of amendments to, to how it operates, um, that it that basically the regime of that the UN sought to institute, I mean, you know, in 1945, was one of non-interference. So where do you stand with regard to legality as conceived under the UN Charter? Um, isn't there some basis at least to de- to uh, to fall back on it, I guess, as a, if you're seeking to defend sovereignty? So the UN, it has had this reputation as being the place for defending sovereignty as a result of the Charter and also because so many um, nations that um, became independent over the course of the 20th century from the European empires, you know, they found a home and um, seemingly institutional and legal protection in the UN. But I think that was more uh, artifact of the Cold War. So um, during the Cold War, the USSR and the USA, they were both, you know, they both basically kind of checkmated each other um, on the Security Council and the UN Security Council. And so this prevented the UN really from ever um, acting the way in which it was intended to act. And it's worth, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it can't be escaped from the fact the UN was set up by three men, um, Churchill, Uncle Joe and FDR. And of the two, you know, um, FDR had the vision of the UN as what he called a trusteeship of the powerful, that the UN Security Council would effectively rule over this um, world that was fully integrated into the institutions of the UN beneath the UN Security Council. And that was FDR. You know, I mean, obviously, Churchill and um, Stalin um, 
had no reason to have any any kind of more liberal view of international order. So that only really and that kind of vision of the UN, um, you know, it, it was it didn't it wasn't realized during the Cold War as an accident of the fact, like I say, that the Soviets and the Americans um, couldn't agree. Once the Cold War came to an end, I think the UN be- acted far more like it was originally intended, like a trusteeship of the powerful. Mm. Um, and there its capacity to override the rights of nation states, the rights of its member states, um, was much more in evidence. So whatever legal protections it offers in the Charter, it has far greater powers are afforded to the UN Security Council to override those rights. So, um you know, the, the notion that the UN is a refuge for independent nationhood is a fiction um, and one that only, you know, that was an accident of Cold War history. So, I mean, we should maybe turn to to the lefty section of, uh, <laughs> of this episode, um, because maybe some of our listeners are hearing this and going, OK, 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 but why don't you just call it imperialism? Isn't it just imperialism? And in fact, Phil's book doesn't contain many mentions, maybe five mentions or something, uh, according to the index of of imperialism. There's a little bit of discussion about Lenin and Leninism, but it's it's sort of um, an oblique reference to it. So um why not just describe this as liberal imperialism or humanitarian imperialism? I mean, someone like Richard Seymour has written a book describing it as such. Um, why don't you? Why don't you just say, you know, describe it in those terms, and instead seek to put it in, I don't know, in a sort of different sort of language. I mean, you call it as cosmopolitan dystopia rather than, you know, um, imperialism. I, don't know, I guess. Yeah. So it's a. I mean, there's a few reasons. I mean, it's a book of, in, um, to a large extent, it's a book of international political theory. So I wanted to un- to understand the political theory of intervention, um, not just to, um, or not primarily to characterize the nature of the domination, but to try and unpick the kinds of justifications that are offered for what is supposed to be an improvement in, you know, in human life and, um to relieve the relieving of human suffering. Um, so ask is, you know, the, the task that I set myself in the book is slightly different. But the other reason I kind of avoid talk of imperialism is, I mean, you know, obviously there is a lot of continuity between um, the kind of classical liberal imperialism of the 19th century, late 19th century, late 20th century. But I think it's also, it's in different and important ways. And I think the idea of imperialism, there's so much, um, you know, the expectation that it's organized around um, the seizure of natural resources that is justified by um, liberal ideals or that it's about the um, expansion of some, the interests of a particular nation state. Um, I think those, that image of um, empire and imperialism is long gone. And the real problem, and this is where the connection to Leninism comes in, is the prev- the kind of the dominance of what I call a vulgar Leninism. So the idea that empire is motivated essentially by um, the seizure of natural resources and economic motivation. And the problem is that it leaves the political justification for those interventions um, intact. So I, so, yeah, this was a cool part yeah. of the book. I really like this kind of critique of vulgar Leninism, that... I mean, basically, the argument is that because 
you know, so-called vulgar Leninists to say, you know, effectively kind of follow the money uh, sort of argument. Yeah, the Iraq war was about oil would be a classic example. Yeah. And so all this human rights talk is just a bit of uh, icing on the cake. It doesn't really matter. It's not really part of the the cake itself, as it were. Um, And that you actually argue that that leaves the doctrine of human rights untouched because they don't take it seriously enough as as, um, not just a bit of sheen, but as somehow constitutive of the way that power operates. But yeah. so just 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 to go back to this point about liberal imperialism um, and Phil, I don't want to tell you why you, you did something, why you talked about cosmopolitanism. But isn't there um, kind of a simpler, a simple or kind of important political like point here, which is that empire is bad, um, but cosmopolitanism is thought to be good. So there's a there's an a, there's a critique of like of the. Um, the idea of cosmopolitanism, potentially the practice in the EU. We don't have to talk about Brexit, but you know, there's there's a there's a link there that actually, I think that's an important point to make, and it, you know, maybe quite a simple, simplistic one. But that this is the logic of cosmopolitanism. If you put the individual above the nation state, this you you'll get ISIS. I'm I'm not saying that you're going to have slave markets in the EU anytime soon, but that's the kind of you know there's there's something in in linking those things and and avoiding well, easy criticism is. of empire. So a wage no, slavery market I mean, across. But the EU is. I mean, the EU sponsored militias, in you know, I mean, infamously in Libya, are running slave markets in Libya. I mean. You know, it was a news story that was picked up a few years ago, um, particularly by Al Jazeera, but it was widely shared. So, I mean, the you know the connection isn't as um, you know isn't as uh, far apart as one would like to hope, perhaps. So, but free yeah, movement I mean, that, of the free movement of all those goods that's well, to be indeed. the fifth freedom of the EU. <laughs> that's pretty grim, George, but not um, you know uh, not perhaps inaccurate. Um, to understand the EU's influence in North Africa, you know, there's no way of getting around what the EU is doing in Libya and the kinds of um, people it's supporting there. But I mean, you're right. So you know, the empire—they're um, not. I mean, they're not constructing traditional spheres of influence, and they're not um, in constructing. They're not kind of subordinating um, nations into these larger political collectivities. In fact, they've had tremendous difficulty establishing. Um, political authority in the territories, and which is part another reason as to why they've been unable to extract themselves from the territories into which they become embroiled. And that is a consequence of the demolition of sovereignty, I think. So, you know, they can kind of try and rebuild the buildings that they bomb and they can kind of appoint um, officials and they can give human rights training to the police forces and armies that they train and they can make sure that there are enough women appointed in the kind of um, Potemkin parliament they've set up in Kabul and all the rest of it. Um, But at the end of the day, if you've suppressed um, the claim of independent sovereignty and you've said that there are authorities that are higher than it and that always kind of supervise it and that can claim greater rights than the sovereign state, it's going to be very difficult to establish legitimate functioning centers of independent political power in the states in which you've bombed um, and destroyed. So, um, yeah, I mean, you're right, George, that it's uh, to talk in terms of empire would be to make things too easy. And also, I think, to... Um, you know, empire, the idea of empire is political order, right? It might be a brutal order and it might be an order that we oppose, but the idea is there is a political order there. Whereas I'm saying if there is a political order in terms of these, um, the states of the f- which have been ruined by the forever war, it's um, an order of chaos. And there's an element... Distinct- there's an element of kind of on our say only, because of course it's only going to be the most powerful states who are going to do 
the protecting. I mean, maybe, you know, the African Union does a lot of kind of peacekeeping operations, but it's always kind of seems to be supported by Western power. So there's an element of, uh, you know, on our side. Yeah, it's only. at the beh- absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, at the behest of the, without a doubt, I mean, eroding the restraints on the use of force is inevitably boosts um, powerful states at the expense of weaker states. I mean, and where you have interventions by weaker states, you know, almost always it's with um, airlift and funding provided by the Americans or the European Union. Yeah, I mean, so it's, this kind of brings us on to, I mean, something that, I mean, you you try to kind of uh, deal with this argument throughout. I mean, about the, this is, I'm going to put it in overly kind of theoretical terms, but the materiality of ideology, the fact that ideology, in particular the kind of human rights ideology, um, is actually a, a material force, that it's not just, um, as I was saying, kind of icing on the cake, but um, in some ways, part of the cake itself. Um, and I think this is important because I think there's often a way of discussing ideology as merely um, a form of kind of false consciousness or as you know, just something which is instrumentally layered on top. And I think this comes through in the discussion of the way that human rights generate or are complicit with exceptionalism or you know, the, the kind of permanent state of exception that uh, you know, cosmopolitan dystopia hinges on. Um, so maybe you could spell out what the link is there. I mean, the so as we've been saying, right? So the you know, so many people said that um, human rights were have been um, instrumentalized because you know, so Iraq was a war for oil, um, and wherever there aren't any oil pipeline, you know, any whether there isn't any oil, there are going to be oil pipelines. I mean, that is. That is only a kind of um, a slight caricature of the criticisms that have been made of humanitarian intervention um, over the last 20 years. And the result of that is always that human rights are seen to be um, a noble ideal that has been contaminated by, you know, geopolitical scheming and the machinations of sinister kind of Western, Western elites. When in fact, I think the, you know, if we understand human rights as a political project, rather than just as um, ornamentation, then it becomes much more, I think it becomes easier to understand why there's such an important part of an institutional and political restructuring of power. Um, And in particular, the fact that it, once you remove the idea of rights from a national context embedded in national institutions, in national political process, um, you effectively take away rights from the agents of those processes. So um, rights that, um, you know, once those rights are no longer contained within um, national political processes, they no longer belong to people within those states. And they become something which becomes the property effectively of um, international courts in The Hague or NATO or the United Nations. So rights that can be showered um, from on high, from authorities that are um, above you and with whom you have no actual kind of concrete institutional connection. You can claim no rights against effectively, you know, there's no kind of processes of electoral representation or just even, you know, basic lines of political accountability, the way that um, there is embedded in the institutions and um the very functioning of the state of sovereign of state sovereignty. So, I mean, uh, human rights shouldn't just be seen as kind of rhetorical froth, or as kind of um, you know uh, 
parchment in, I don't know, um, palaces in The Hague or the UN building in New York. It has been um, a way in which institutions, countries, states, uh, political and legal power has been reorganized and to the detriment of um, representation and accountability and democracy. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of does suggest that without this human rights discourse, you wouldn't, not that you wouldn't have intervention or that you wouldn't have powerful states, and particularly the U.S., intervening in, in weaker states, um, but that it might take on a different intensity or, I mean, I, I guess I'm trying to ask a counterfactual. I mean, what, you know, what, what does, you take away the whole human rights discourse, um, how do states operate yeah, I mean, but it's, well, I mean, I think it would be easier at least to hold power to account. It would be easier to identify um, where power is um, being exercised. And because in it'd ways be more naked. Which, either more naked or at least it'd be possible to attribute it to um, who is responsible for a particular outcome. Whereas right. if, say, the West is responsible for all people everywhere because it's able to defend their rights, then effectively, um, you know, if they're responsible for everyone, they're responsible to no one. Mm. And that is what human rights has done by its very nature as an idea, as a global idea of rights. It means that um, states are effectively free-floating. They're responsible for everyone's human rights everywhere, which means they're actually less responsible to specific groups um, which is to say their own constituents and their own citizens. So, um, I mean, so, I mean, you know, in answer to your counterfactual question, right? So, I mean, we've been in permanent war since the 19, you know, the early 1990s. That coincides with the era of human rights. Um, and before then, you know, it's almost impossible to imagine, but the Gulf War was very controversial in the US Congress at the time. There were people who voted against it. There were people who were deeply opposed. Um, and since then, military interventions have been controversial only insofar as, you know, questions of tactics. Um, is it the right time to intervene? Um, should we, you know, uh, can we spend our boys or should we send the UN in? Um, but there's been no sense in which is it in our interest? What are we doing there? Do we have any right to be there? Are we capable of resolving the problems of the of the people over there? So, mm, I think they. Um, I think human rights has genuinely transformed the way in which military power is seen. It has promoted I, deep yeah. naivety about military force, and everything is now seen as every problem in the world, whether it's a refugee crisis, a conflict, an ethnic you know, an ethnic conflict, a natural disaster is seen as something, even deforestation, as we mentioned in the Amazon, every crisis now is seen as something to which you can apply military force. Yeah, that's really good. It's taken for granted. It's a given um, rather than something to be potentially debated. Do you intervene or not? And then it, you know, there's a huge degree of controversy. Yeah, human rights that. has it's made already... that possible, yeah, yeah because it's yeah. moral, right? So anyone who doesn't want to intervene is immoral, anti-human, inhuman, inhumane, right? Yeah. So and human rights is what has made that possible. So the, the, I think that's the answer to your counterfactual. It is absolutely intertwined with the year of permanent war, and it has made it yeah. possible. So it's not just ornamentation for American oil interests. Um, it has fundamentally transformed um, the nature of international order and political order more generally. Oh, very good. Very yeah, good. I, I think, think uh, go ahead, George. No, that kind of double sided on the one hand, it's in, um, with respect to human rights. On one hand, it's a moral um, issue or it's moralized. And on the other hand, it, it, it dilutes or, or makes accountability much more 
diffuse. I mean, it as you draw out in the you know basically the end of of the book, it has another impact as well that essentially the ultimate responsibility isn't really everybody's. It's ultimately the Americans. You know, the Americans are going to come in and save everybody. So you have this um, this liberalism of fear is how you describe it, which is essentially a globalized, generalized system of, of ultimate dependence on the US. They're going to come in, you know, at the end of the movie with the American flag and, you know, save um, save everybody. And that's, you, you know, I think that that resonates and, and definitely rings true. And I think that connection with with human rights, it's the ideology of that state paternalism and, and permanent war. It gives expression to that liberalism of fear and it kind of normalizes crisis as a permanent condition of international order. There's always going to be a problem which, which takes our moral attention. It really sort of, I think that idea of liberalism of fear is, is one of the things that stuck with me in, in, in the book, uh, from the book. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. I think there's one final element we should deal with and it's maybe the most complicated one, or I, I certainly found it the most sophisticated part of the book. And I think it's a really interesting argument that we should uh, try to lay out, or I mean, well, Phil lay out. Um, but it's, there's... it's a sophisticated, uh, surprisingly sophisticated book, I think we were <laughs> discussing <laughs> before recording. I, so, I said it was quite so sophisticated. Funny. I didn't say it was surprisingly quite. sophisticated. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry, quite. Yeah, that, but that's an accentuator. I don't know if that means... It can minimize, but also accentuate. Very... No, no, but it means qu- quite a lot. You know, I think it was... Quite a lot sophisticated. Um, hey guys. <laughs> um, all right, let's stop. Uh, let's stop this now, right now. Um, so you argue that, I mean, the doctrine of responsibility to protect, which has been sort of inaugurated, um, I think as of around 2008, if I'm correct, um, which uh, is a sort of step beyond just humanitarian intervention because it formalizes this responsibility to protect. Uh, responsibility to intervene when there is a possibility of atrocity. Now, the way you look at this, and I thought this was really interesting, is that you advance a political theory about this. So it's not just about international relations, but you place the issue in the context of, um, you know, the supposedly more ordered realm of the relationships, the relationship between citizens and the state about the very notion of sovereignty itself. So it's not just about, you know, does the responsibility to protect actually work? Does it empower certain states over others? But what does it do to the very relations between citizens and the state? And the dichotomy that this whole argument pivots on is something that you already said, um, but I want to highlight it again, because it's really important. It's uh, responsibility for versus responsibility to. So you can have a state being responsible for people, or you can have a state being responsible to its people. And that latter one is obviously a much more uh, well, effectively democratic sort of conception, whereas the other one is more paternalistic. And so you argue that the responsibility to protect has transformed this relationship. Um, well, I'll let you explain how first before we come in with more critical points. Yes. Yeah, so the um, it wasn't 2008, 2005 was the big year for the responsibility to protect or R2P as, um, as the kind of uh, in um, as the kind of bureaucratic academic jargon goes. 2005, because there was um, the states of the UN agreed to it. Um, There was a world summit at that point, the largest gathering of world leaders in history, and all the states of the world agreed to it. At the time, lots of NGO types, Western Cosmo, liberals, and so on, were greatly cheered by the fact that China, which had been so resistant to responsibility to protect, signed up to it in 2005. And this was seen as a big moment. Um, To my mind, I mean, it seemed much more telling 
that the fact that China signed up to it seemed to me rather to speak to the fact that it was so easy for you know the most powerful authoritarian state in the world to sign up to this ideal suggested to me that it was far more far less liberal um, than we'd been led to believe. And I think, and the reason that it is easy for a state like China, and indeed all other authoritarian states, to um, abide by and agree to the principles of the responsibility to protect is exactly for that reason. It's a liberal paternalism, essentially. Um, so the idea of responsibility to protect is if a state fails to uphold, to provide certain kinds of basic institutions of human security, then that kind of... Uh, defaults to the international community, to other states. Um, and it precisely institutionalizes this idea that states are responsible for people on their territory. They're not responsible to them. Um, because if they were responsible to them, then it would be up for the people in those states to hold their own states to account. Um, whereas the responsibility to protect means essentially that other that states hold each other to account. Um, and it's only you know, insofar as these things are important at all, and I think they are important in as much as it is the way in which international politics is understood and conducted. It's a matter increasingly of international law, of UN resolutions, of practice in the United Nations, embassies around the world, military operations, just the way in which we think about international politics. This idea of responsibility is um, a humanitarian one rather than a one of um, accountability. Rather, it's about um, states shepherding their people, protecting their people. It's a deeply paternalistic vision. And that is why that is why the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing was happy to subscribe to it. The fact that the US and China agree on one thing and that they both signed up to the responsibility to protect, I think should tell you all that you need to know about um, whether or not the people of the world should put their hope in um, the R2P to save them if they're in trouble. No, that's very good. I mean, anytime there's a wide ranging consensus, that should always ring alarm bells. But um, as, as good a point as that is, I guess what, what didn't quite make sense to me is the idea that, so you're linking this idea of sovereignty, of state sovereignty to popular sovereignty or to democracy. And you know, the, the counter argument to that would be that, well, the old Hobbesian notion of sovereignty also doesn't provide for any sort of democracy. I mean, the, the, the sovereign, uh, the Leviathan just needs to basically provide security to instill, to institute order um, and isn't really responsible for responsible uh, or uh, answerable to its people necessarily, other than just providing security. So this new development responsibility to protect, which I think you argue convincingly transforms maybe the nature of state sovereignty. I mean, it might not be a huge amount better because it allows for more intervention, but it doesn't seem to be a huge amount worse, or at least you can't contrast responsibility to protect with some prior regime, which was more democratic because the old regime of sovereignty wasn't, didn't necessarily provide for, didn't stipulate democracy as a, as a requirement. Yeah. So there is, it's true. There's no guarantee of democracy that comes with state sovereignty. Um, but the precondition of democracy is state sovereignty. There is no way in which um, democracy can exist without the idea of, um, of sovereignty, which is to say the idea of identifying a secular supreme authority, which is centered around um, the will of the people, a collective um, 
a collective political aspiration to self-government. That That is institutionalized in the idea of state sovereignty, and it is an absolute precondition of democracy. So the responsibility to protect scrambles that, and it places, um, you know, it makes security um, the key organizing principle of political order, um, which is to say higher than ideals of whether or not a state is representative or accountable. So it's a deep, but, but, but this is the point. But this is the point. It wasn't before either. I mean, you know, the, the no, no, but like state said, also just has security at, at its no, core. Well, so in some well, in some ways, it's regressive to kind of an old, you know, to a purely um, to a Habesian ideal. In some way, it's regressive in that respect, um, for sure, right? But like I say, I mean, the point is, the old idea of state sovereignty is a precondition for democracy and representative government. It's no guarantee of them, but it is a necessary precondition. Whereas the responsibility to sovereignty as responsibility model scrambles the very basis of democratic and representative government. Because there's always someone else to be answerable to. I mean, there's always yes. the United States, ultimately. Ultimately, who, uh, might ultimately the to. US, yeah. Um, but obviously, you know, I mean, it could also mean, say, Russia in the Caucasus, right? But, you know, in most places, it means that the ultimate backstop is the US. And um, I guess, you know, um, you never know what the US will bring, you know, will it be bombs or will it be aid packages, as, uh, you know, as was the experience of uh, the Afghans in the last 20 years. So just a final, like, follow up question, and I sort of I haven't you know fully thought this through so i might i might scramble it a little bit but is is the model of international order that you sketch here because kind of are you mistaking cause for effect like it talking about sovereignty and the importance of popular sovereignty well you know regular listeners might have heard the name peter mayer and the concept of the void before but is this the sort of international order that comes about from semi semi sovereign peoples from a from an evacuation of popular sovereignty um or is it a, a cause or is it part of that dynamic i guess you know because we picked up we, we sort of started talking about this a bit earlier like the 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 extent to which the international order is a consequence of the domestic politics of, of states and how they play out or or the role that it has in in determining them so i guess the question is like given the importance of sovereignty to to the to the model that you're you know you you're kind of putting forward is this just a consequence of having um really evacuated popular sovereignty across many states in the world it's a good question and a difficult one to answer, I suppose, in terms of I'm not sure it would be possible to kind of identify one which is logically prior. I mean, certainly the... Um, you could run some regression analyses if you had some good yeah. data. No, but, but there's, actually some, there's actually something Depends. to tag on to this. Depend, yeah, go on. There's one thing to tag on to this as well, which is the other side to, to George's point, which is not just in kind of, um, you know, advanced democracies uh, who which have been hollowed out, but also in kind of weaker states in the third world, which also don't seem to aspire to sovereignty very much either. I mean, I think all those movements um, of the 70s and 80s have now gone as well. So it's kind of like, yeah, the powerful states don't want sovereignty so they can interfere in everything. And weak states don't seem to exhibit the desire for, yeah, for sovereignty no, I mean, either. And that's important, I think, you know, so I mean, whereas once upon a time, you know, the aspiration to independent nationhood, to modernization and development would have captured the imagination of um, of the young and ambitious in um, 
developing countries across the world, you know, now, um, you know, they'll probably they'll want to emigrate abroad, I guess, for um, better life chances and for higher living standards and for um, hope um, or to work for an NGO. Um, or to hope that kind of international, some kind of international protectorate or administration or external power kind of um, resolves the problems of their own society. So I think it is a more general thing. In answer to George's question, I mean, certainly the, you know, the um, insofar as human rights has allowed Western governments to um, solidify the distance from their own constituents and their, to, as I mentioned before, to kind of repress the legitimacy um, and the demand to curb effectively and to have a counterweight to the demands of their own constituents. Um, it has helped to solidify the decay of representative government um, in the West, in Western states themselves. And so, you know, it's part of that larger picture without a doubt. Excellent stuff. I think we should uh, wrap it up here. Um, and, just maybe uh, a final point that we shouldn't be suckers for discourses of care and protection, because uh, I think it seems to be increasingly a, an impediment to political thought that if someone waltz, someone powerful waltzes in and saying we're doing this to protect uh, or to care for people, um, they're selling something else. And so um, we should be we should always be deeply skeptical of that. There's a link to the book, of course, in the show notes, but just repeat, it's uh, Cosmopolitan Dystopia, International Intervention and the Failure of the West. Uh, highly recommended. Um, obviously, I have to say that because otherwise Phil won't talk to me anymore, um, which might sound like a good thing, but uh, on balance, probably a bad thing. All right, that's it for now. Uh, catch you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.